Planet Hope is brought to you by The Times in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. Hans Wilsdorf, the founder of Rolex, used the world as a testing ground for his watches, sending them to the most extreme locations, supporting 20th century explorers in their quest for discovery. As the 21st century unfolds, Rolex continues the legacy of its founder, supporting the explorers of today on their new mission to make the planet perpetual. The Earth is dependent on the individuals and organisations committed to finding solutions to preserve our home, if not for us, then for future generations. And with the Rolex Perpetual Planet Initiative, we're one step closer to a planet with this hope. Discover more about the Rolex Perpetual Planet Initiative on Rolex.org. Vaccinations. They reduce the risk of getting a disease by working with your body's natural defences to build protection. And as modern science has evolved, we now have vaccines to prevent more than 20 life-threatening diseases, helping people of all ages live longer, healthier lives. In fact, the World Health Organization has recorded that immunisation currently prevents 3 to 5 million deaths every year from diseases like tetanus, diphtheria, influenza, measles and more. But despite our awareness of how crucial immunisation is for global health, there's a large part of the world which is failed by vaccinations. Billions of people are unvaccinated against COVID, and the vast majority of those who are unvaccinated are not so by choice. Vaccine inequity happens mostly in low-income countries, where facilities and economies are less developed. And if the COVID pandemic taught us anything, it's that vaccine inequality is still a challenge we've yet to get right. Of the more than 10 billion doses of the coronavirus vaccine distributed worldwide, only 1% have been administered in low-income countries. Medical inequality jeopardises the safety of everyone and contributes to growing inequalities between and within countries. Not only does it prolong the risk of life-threatening diseases, but it can also slow the economic recovery of entire countries. But there is hope, with innovative engineers developing new technologies which are paving the way for a healthier global population. A lot of people are dying, and it's even more amplified that the lion's share of those are taking place in the developing worlds. We have an amazing ability to invent and to create solutions. We can't wait until it's too late. I'm Adam Vaughan, the Environment Editor for The Times, and this is Planet Hope, in partnership with Rolex. Today, we're hearing from the man whose medical inventions are revolutionising the world's health. In this episode, we're connecting to the capital of Queensland, Australia, Brisbane. Known as a modern bustling city with blue skies and beautiful islands just off the east coast, Brisbane is the perfect location for city-loving citizens and tourists alike. But despite the obvious attractions from this sunshine state, Brisbane is also a growing hub for innovation and exploration. And in this episode, my guest is a glowing example of how Brisbane is leading the modern tech revolution, whilst he remains a true Aussie sun worshipper at heart. My name's Mark Kendall. I'm a professor of biomedical engineering and a builder of companies and inventor of technologies for global healthcare. I'm also a Rolex laureate for enterprise. So Mark, it's sort of crack of dawn for me over here. What have you been up to today? It must be getting on for evening by your time. That's right. It's uh, the end of the the day, more or less here in Brisbane, Australia. It's supposed to be autumn, but uh, another 32 degrees day here. (laughs) Aside from the weather, which is uh, pretty predictable here in Brisbane, I've been in the office uh, 
on, on a day that will be really memorable for us in, in my company, which is the, the very first day we've deployed our microwearable sensor on people for human clinical trials. So does that mean that tonight you're going to go back and start looking at the uh, first data on your computer rather than going out and enjoying the sun and a beer? So Adam, um, I hope you don't mind me just sort of being upfront about deploying or embracing my inner geek, but I'm so getting into that data, absolutely. <laughs> I could just tell that's exactly what you're going to be doing. Of course you are. <laughs> it's okay, because it's not an event that the weather's good here. The weather will be good tomorrow and the next day and the next day. There'll be plenty of other opportunities. Mark is a modest man, but I'm sure he won't mind me telling you that he has filed more than 160 patents, partnered globally with renowned institutions such as the World Health Organization and held teaching roles at both Oxford University and the Australian National University. Mark's extensive career has made significant contributions to modern medicine and technology worldwide. And Mark's most recent venture as the founder and CEO of Wear Optimo, the wearable technology that helps users to track their health in real time, could be his most impressive endeavor to date. But before Mark tells us more about his revolutionary microscopic technology, I wanted to rewind back to one of his first groundbreaking pursuits, one which can make even the strongest of people wince, vaccinations. I asked Mark if he could explain some of the risks that come with traditional needle-based vaccines. The needle and syringe has been around a very long time. It was first invented in 1853, a little bit up the road from where you are in Scotland. And um, there's a lot of issues associated with that old technology. And don't get me wrong, vaccination as a field has changed people's lives. We, we've just been through a pandemic that uh, we could see the importance of effective vaccination. But having said all of that, the, the needle and syringe still has critical limitations. The obvious one is most people don't like needles and the way that expresses itself is about 10 to 20% of the population have a, a real thing called needle phobia, which means that they actively are avoiding being vaccinated. So that's a more obvious thing, but there's been other limitations that are less obvious but really important. Uh, so one is that because vaccines are in liquid form in, within a needle, most of them need refrigeration. And we've learned that in the pandemic as well. So there's some vaccinations that require deep refrigeration. And there's a third one as well, which is um, even when the refrigeration works, the needle actually places vaccine into a part of the body that's not really well suited to effective vaccination. It misses our immune sweet spot, which is, is in the skin. And so what happened is uh, identified those key limitations and looked for a better way to try and deal with that. And the stimulus for it, there was many, but one was uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Uh, they put out a call for better vaccines for the developing world. And I was actually over at Oxford at the time, and the weather was probably a bit like what you're referring to today. So not designed for outdoor pursuits. So I kind of sat down and started to really look at tackling that problem. It seems kind of extraordinary in a way, doesn't it? When you stop and, you know, it's one of those things we sort of take for granted, you know, that vaccines come via needles. And then you stop and think, well, this is something that's been around since the 19th century as a technology. It seems almost crazy that it's taken us this long to sort of revisit it, no? Yeah, it's astonishing. I suppose one way you can look at it is such a successful technology too. It's very cheap and it works. But think of other walks of life where we're still using a technology that's 170, 180 years old. And I don't think there's that many options uh, that are there. Motor cars didn't exist back then. The bicycle wasn't invented. So it's fair to say there's some room for movement. Got you. And, and in terms of, you know, you were talking through some of the issues there of needles, you know, obviously the take-up issue, access issue. And, and on that access issue, just explain a little bit about how that sort of risk is slightly more elevated 
in low and middle income countries. So when there's less resources, the limitations of that technology, the needle and syringe, really get amplified and exposed. Maintaining the cold chain is a, is a massive issue anywhere, but in the developing world, it's a serious issue. The language developing world is sort of less in favour now. We, we talk about low resource settings, and I think that's important to get that concept across. So it's where we talk about that last mile where you're trying to reach people in the most re remote locations. So maintaining the cold chain is an issue there, but, but also there's some massive temptation to reuse the needle uh, as well. And so that's obviously not something that we want to happen. That's another limitation of the needle. On that point about the sort of, you know, difficulties of the cold chain, you know, this sort of network of refrigeration. Are there any kind of striking numbers that illustrate your point that you just were making? Indeed there is. So there's about 14 million deaths per year uh, from infectious disease. That's not even including once in a hundred year pandemic that we're just seeing the back end of right now. We're always searching for adequate methods to try and tackle and improve how that gets done. It's astonishing that all of the effort, the bulk of the efforts are directed at uh, the new vaccine, and then you whack it in a needle and syringe right at the end. Running into some other numbers that really illustrate the point. So vaccination in Africa, the WHO has estimated, and these numbers are a little bit old now, but it's still representative, but half the vaccinations that have been used in that setting are not as effective as they should or could be because the cold chain hasn't been maintained as it could, as well as it could. So there are a couple of examples of the numbers. Yeah, that's a pretty astonishing one, the half one. And I guess, you know, you were talking earlier about how, you know, you've been over in Oxford and you talked about the Gates Foundation, who obviously got a lot of work in different places. I assume you travel around a bit. I wondered if you could sort of give some first-hand examples of this kind of these challenges in lower income countries. One really good example is uh, the work that Rolex helped create. So I won a Rolex Award for Enterprise the better part of a decade ago. And what that allowed me to do was go to a place from where you're sitting would sound the other end of the planet, but here in Brisbane, Australia is in our backyard, and that's Papua New Guinea. And Papua New Guinea is only a three-hour flight from Brisbane, but it's a completely different world. Uh, so it's uh, blessed with all manner of resources. It's the size of France, but its population is maybe about five, five to 10 million people, something like that. But it's unbelievably mountainous. And unfortunately, it's, it's an extreme low resource setting. So cost profile for vaccination matters a lot. At that time when I was there, the H human papillomavirus wasn't administered in Papua New Guinea. So you had the haves and have nots. And when you unpack the, the reasons why, that vaccine's actually quite expensive. It's expensive to make and the cold chain's very important as well. So for those reasons, we went to Papua New Guinea to get started with the usability testing for the nanopatch in hospital settings in, in Port Moresby. So that was really important step in the endeavor of taking this technology forward to make an impact. If you were to sort of changing tack a little, Mark, if we sort of cast your mind back, I wondered where does your passion for all this, you know, for engineering and health and the sort of crossover of the two, where does that stem from, do you think? I suppose the way I've been raised, I've been always thinking about how to help and how to concentrate on solutions rather than problems. Uh, we need to appreciate problems, there's no doubt, but uh, rather than just framing a problem and then doing nothing about it. It's always like five minutes on the problem, 10 minutes on the solution. So there's that. Uh, I think part of my childhood 
came through in, in, in building who I am today. So part of my childhood, I lived in Malaysia as a teenager. Uh, so I was exposed to all manner of things that from an Australian perspective in the 1980s, you, you wouldn't get to see. So I have a feeling that's, that's shaped my thinking as well. And I suppose I'm just one of those people that just sees things and always looking for ways to, to make it work better. That's an engineer's instinct, but what really resonates with me is applying that engineer's instinct to areas that um, make a difference to someone's health in a good way. And do you remember, again, sort of going back in time, you know, obviously one of the things we're going to be talking about in a minute is technology you've worked on of Nanopatch. And um, I wondered if you could go back a bit further and sort of think back to one of the, not necessarily the first, but one of the sort of first products you've kind of sort of trialed and how that made you feel actually seeing that, it, you know, as an engineer, seeing that this thing you thought would work did work, or maybe it didn't work. <laughs> what would you pick out? Well, indeed, I can, I can point out many cases where it didn't work. You need to work through those to get to the, the sweet spot where things begin to work. You do really remember those pivotal moments where something absolutely clicks. It's a tremendous feeling because you're putting yourself out there uh, when you're putting forward a concept. You have a feeling it will work. You do everything you can to de-risk it, but in the end you have to make that leap and find out if it's going to work. So I, I do remember one example. I remember when the very first data came in with the nano patch. I remember getting a phone call from one of my scientists because I was, I was driving at the time and he explained to me uh, what th this is vaccination data, real real vaccination data. It's not, not in the human but in the precursor animal model. But uh, I remember just, just hearing that and just it was just an unbelievable feeling. So you do live for those rare moments. I think, as I understand it, Mark, you filed more than 160 patents, I think. I guess people listening might be thinking, what's the secret? <laughs> Where does the sort of innovation come from? What's the sort of, I don't know, that seems pretty prolific. What's the secret to that? Part of the answer is stick at it for a long time and the numbers start accumulating. Uh, so I've been, <laughs> I've been um, patenting now f since 1999. We have this tradition in, in my company. What was the number one song uh, that was on the charts when, when you filed your first patent? Because uh, we have this tradition of celebrating patents. And I think in my case it was... Britney Spears hit me baby one more time. So that's where it started. And it's interesting. It's a creative endeavor. And, and a lot of people don't quite realize that. But I can imagine if you're talking to a musician about how they create their songs and there's different journeys for each one. And that's the same case with me. But I'm highly curious and always looking to, to fix things. But in addition to that, I've evolved from beyond just doing it as an individual, but bringing other people with me and the musical equivalent of that is jamming with other people, especially the younger musicians. And I'm getting a lot of joy and fulfillment from giving them that kind of experience that, that I once had, because the idea is that uh, they're learning it. Not only are we succeeding with our technologies, but we're teaching them the, the way in how you can do this. It's a, it's a methodology. And so that they, they can go on and create these sorts of things in their own right as well. Got you to bring you through the next generation of researchers and engineers. What sort of inspired or pushed you towards, you know, medical technologies? Where did that come from? It's probably not the answer you're expecting, but it was a two-minute conversation was pivotal in all of this. So one of those classic sliding door moments. So uh, my undergraduate degree was in mechanical engineering and my, my PhD was in rockets. So hypervelocity aerodynamics, it's Mars reentry vehicles, very high-speed flows. 
I was really into rockets and high-speed flows. I was supposed to go to California to continue to do that at a place called Caltech, which is one of the, the meccas for, for rockets. And then a guy, a guy came up to me at a conference and he said he had this idea to use rockets to fire vaccines in particle form into the skin. And he asked if I'd like to come and work with him. I found that really intriguing. And, and so I, I had two questions at the time. One was, uh, well, where, where are you doing this work? And he said at Oxford University. And the second was, well, would I get a chance to row? <laughs> and he said, if you're good enough. Now, of course, there's a lot more to it than that. There was a tremendous amount of process. Oxford doesn't just let anyone in. But three months later, um, I was wearing a scarf in Oxford as opposed to sandals in, in California. And that was the start of that journey for medical devices. And, um, and what really resonated with me was the idea that you're, you're using technology or deploying your ideas and technology, not in domains that quite often, you can dress them up as you like, but quite often rockets can be killing machines, but turning it all around and, and actually working on things to keep people alive. And, and that really resonated with me and still does. So Mark, back to you, the technology you've been working on. So correct me if I'm wrong, I think you developed the technology, sort of the, pro, the technique for delivering vaccines directly into the skin without needles about two decades ago. And this is what um, we've already touched on a couple of times called a nanopatch. Can you just explain what it is in basics? So what it is, is um, it looks like a patch to the naked eye, but under a microscope, you see thousands of tiny little projections and you dry coat vaccines to those projections. And I designed those projections because I'd mapped the skin's immune system. And there's a whole bunch of cells just below the skin's surface that are very important for vaccines. They're immune cells. And I devised a way to place vaccine directly to those cells, and that led to vaccines working better. So when you apply the nanopatch against the skin, these projections come up next to and direct contact with many of these cells and release that vaccine at a microscopic level uh, to those cells. And that leads to far more effective vaccines, lower doses as well. Got you. So would it, I mean, would it be dumbing it down too much to say it's effectively lots of tiny needles? I suppose if you zoom something up enough, uh, it'll start to look big. Uh, so these things are invisible to the human eye. There's a field called micro needles. And so I'm one of the, the founders of, of that field. The nanopatch is an embodiment of that, of uh, placing things into the skin. One segue that, that came from that was turning things on their head and actually sampling what's actually taking place in the skin as well. And that's a precursor to uh, what we're doing now, which is measurements of key biomarkers to allow timely interventions for all manner of problems like heart attacks. On the nanopatch, you've explained what it is. How, do, how is the patch administered and you know who can do it? Is it something that requires high levels of training? So uh, we see it as a progression. So ultimately, it's something that could be self-administered. It's not a skill set thing. You, you place it on, on your, your skin and press a button. And that's all that needs to happen. But I've been around long enough to know that you, you need to sort of step through things before you get to, to that embodiment. Uh, what I envisage or what's envisaged in the first instance is still trained practitioners using it, but it's a, it's a needle-free, pain-free experience. The idea that it could be self-administered opens up seemingly all sorts of possibilities that you could, beyond posting them to people that, I don't know, perhaps even like 3D print them in places that you can't get to, like mountainous regions, I don't know. Or in space, Right. Or, or having a drone yeah. drop them to you. There's so many possibilities. Just to give a sense to people listening of how important this technology has been in lower middle income countries, you know, what would be maybe some real life examples you'd give there? 
So it's the diseases that are really biting in those settings that are less prevalent in the developing world. So you have the big three. Uh, so the big three are malaria, tuberculosis, HIV. They're in other parts of the world, but they're, they're, they're hugely rampant in those settings. Beyond that, the battle's still on to eradicate polio. It sort of happens, but not quite there. But, but in addition to that, other diseases such as dengue, mosquito-borne viruses, that's a, again rampant in, in those sorts of settings. So uh, unfortunately, there's sort of an overlay of being resource poor, but also quite often in, in a tropical belt that opens up an amplification for those sorts of diseases. So unfortunately, the bulk of the deaths that take place, those 14 million deaths that take place for infectious disease, I don't have the exact number, but the bulk of those are in low resource settings. Give us a little bit of a sense there of like, you know, you, you sort of laid out the problem there, but a little sense of the sort of dent that Nanopatch is making in that. So it's still very much a work in progress. So Adam is not on the market at this point in time. So it's not for purchasing, uh, if that makes sense. So it's still going through the development pathway, but uh, it's in clinical testing with a few different key disease indications. So it's still on the pathway towards that. If I had a, everything my way, I would have loved for it to be on the market and ready for deployment during the pandemic. The impact it would have made in the pandemic would have been quite significant, I think. So that's been and gone. So we need to be ready for the next one. Have you had any chance to, you know, things going through those final stages, have you had any chance to sort of trial or test it at all in some of those settings that where you want to use it? You know, you mentioned obviously the issues about the cold chain and the, you know, the fact that a lot of these tropical diseases are in, you know, naturally hot places. Is it all been the testing been in Australia so far or has it been tested in other sort of environments as it were? So certainly uh, ground zero for it has been testing within Australia, and, and that makes sense. You need to start with those those cohorts, but uh, some limited testing has been done in Africa. Those stages are still to come. So it's working through the pipeline of clinical testing, and so what's required in order to get there. So as, as you start to open up the population and use it in larger numbers, then you can start broadening out the field settings as well. And so that's that's really where that starts to come in. Got you, got you. You mentioned Rolex briefly earlier to give a bit of a sense of how they've been supporting your work in developing this technology. So Adam, Rolex really intersected with me at a, at a really pivotal time in the work that I was doing with the Nanopatch. So there's pre and post Rolex. So uh, before then, I was working very much in a lab setting and was just transitioning the tech to start being deployed for human work. And that's a really important part in the lifetime of any technology. By securing that Rolex Award for Enterprise, I had the ability to bring the developing world in a formal way to the agenda. And so that was allowing us to fast track that activity. So by going to Papua New Guinea with the resources that Rolex helped provide, that helped bring that pathway into place. That was sort of something I expected to happen if I was fortunate enough to secure the, the Rolex Award. But there's this all this additional stuff that's been hugely impactful that's taken place since. Doors being opened into the World Health Organization, uh, as, as one example, with Rolex being based in Geneva. My point is the benefits have been far in a positive way, disproportionate to the, the size of the, the ward itself. And it's continued in many ways. Adam has had a bit of a psychological impact on me in, in a good way, in the sense that by being exposed to the Rolex community and the other laureates, I was learning about how they look at the world and their spirit of enterprise. And so that gave me a rolled up sense of encouragement and made me brave enough to actually start to create this next thing that we're doing now. 
I'm pretty confident that if I hadn't secured this Rolex Award for Enterprise, I probably wouldn't have had a go at doing this, this next thing and building this new enterprise in a way that we are. We're talking to the biomedical engineer, Mark Kendall. Mark has made it clear that modern innovations in medicine are a key solution for improving global health. The needle vaccination has proved to be an effective apparatus for reducing the spread of disease. But as Mark quite rightly pointed out, it's an apparatus which until now hasn't really evolved for over a century. And with the COVID-19 pandemic highlighting medical inequity across the globe, it's evident that developing low-cost medical technology needs to be made a priority. So it's no surprise that the nanopatch isn't the only invention that Mark is working on. I asked him to tell me more about his latest innovation. Mid last decade, Adam, there's a thing that popped along into human society. It's called the Apple Watch. And so wearables like that have uh, appeared. And I observed that with great interest because I could see suddenly that there's a whole new world about to happen. But I could also see the massive limitations of what we think of today's wearables. And the massive limitation is that the skin does a brilliant job of being a barrier. So something like a Fitbit or an Apple Watch does not really have the ability to gain access to the signals that matter the most for healthcare. So if we kind of flash forward to the unmet needs, so the biggest kill on the planet is cardiovascular disease. There's north of 30 million deaths per year in that space. And an unfortunate subset of that, that is um, heart attacks. And it's astonishing in this day and age that people can drop dead from heart attacks just walking on the street as an example without any notice. Yet the treatments could be as simple as taking an aspirin. So th there's this area of unmet need where time matters where we, you need to buy time for, for intervention. And that's what our, our micro-wearable technology does because we gain access to signals by reaching just a hair's width into the skin to the, these biomarkers in a minimally invasive way, but open up the possibility for treatment in these massive areas of unmet need. That's our overarching concept, and that's something that we're working towards today. A quirk of timing is uh, that you're talking with me today, which is the very first day of formal human clinical testing of our microwearable technology. Uh, so that's a key milestone for the technology. So we're very excited about that. Well, that's a huge milestone. How many people is that? So this is data rich and numbers low. Uh, so we're really working to tens of tens of people, uh, but each person gets millions and millions and millions of data points. It's a data-rich environment. You sort of very eloquently spell out the, the unmet need there. And I just wanted to drill a little bit into the sort of practicalities of how it works. So, you know, people might sort of look at their, you know, what they've got on their wrist. You know, I've got a, a running watch on here, which will, you know, give me a, a rough sort of guide to my heart rate. And obviously that some of you mentioned Apple's watches, they can, they've added various layers of sensors. You know, just explain a bit about what it's you're adding by air versus slightly going into the skin there. What does it do? Yeah, what's it, I mean, yeah, well, just because, you know, people may be thinking I've already got quite fancy sensors on my wrist. What is, you know, what is having, what is having this sort of microwearable? And also, what do these microwearables look like? Does it look like a band? It's a sticker-like sensor to the naked eye. Uh, so the microwearable technology is, uh, is a unique way of gaining access to signals uh, that today's wearables like a, an Apple Watch or a Fitbit, surface-based wearables, are just unable to, to achieve. 
And that's because the, the skin's an amazing barrier that keeps the bad stuff out and the good stuff in. And the way that uh, today's typical wearables work is they just provide light signals that uh, don't actually uh, gain uh, useful information or much useful information in the context of key diseases. So we know this and, and many other people do. So we've come up with a way that gains access to these signals in that uh, today's surface-based wearables are unable to do. And that's with a, a series of very, very small microelectrodes that just reach a hair's width into the skin and interrogate that particular environment and directly detect key markers for diseases that matter a lot, like infectious disease, but also cardiovascular disease, which is uh, the biggest killer on the planet and heart attacks are an important uh, example. So. What happens if I talk about heart attacks as a good example? When someone has a heart attack, the heart muscle goes through a death process. It just starts dying. And in fact, the definition of a heart attack is the whole heart is dead, unfortunately. But when that death is happening, there's molecules that are released into our bloodstream, these death molecules. They're called proteins. And one of those particular ones is called troponin. And so that's released through the body. It's, it's in your skin. So our microwearable is directly measuring troponin in real time. And so picking up the kinetics of that curve quite often, even before you can feel any pain taking place at all. That's the, that's the concept that we're working to. Now, of course, there's a lot of important testing that we need to do. I don't want to create an impression that this is on the market and a done deal. Uh, there's, there's still much to be tested. You talked about how Nanopatch is helping people in sort of lower income settings this sounds like it might be just something for people like you and I in very high-income settings, but how could this help You know, in the same way that Nana Patch might? So our, our guiding principle, Adam, is, is to always look to get the cost profile as low as possible, and by doing that, then it can be deployed broadly. And so that's what we're working to uh, within my company, which is called We're Optimo. So we have a single-use disposable component. That's the key piece. Now, a bit of a benchmark, if you like, is one of the golden rules, if you like, for uh, trying to get things deployed into the developing world. I shouldn't say that anymore. I should say low resource settings is to get below $1 US per use. That's how it is for vaccines. That's how it needs to be for, for this microwearable technology as well. All the indications are in our simplest embodiment that we think we can get below that uh, number, but we need to scale it in terms of volume in order to get there. Got you. No, that's really interesting on the cost. And and would the utility be the same? Would the idea be to initially start with early warnings of heart attacks? Is that the initial use you're imagining in, the, in those sort of settings? Some lessons I've learned in life the easy way, sometimes the hard way. One of the ones I've learned through both is always work with the clinicians first. Don't try and circumvent the clinicians. What we're doing then uh, in, in the concept of the cardiac microwearable, what we see is the first case, Adam, is... Uh, when someone's presenting to a hospital with a chest pain, uh, so normally what takes place in that setting is all manner of tests are done that takes a considerable period of time before you truly get a read if someone's having a heart attack or not. Uh, so what we envisage is in the hands of the practitioners, they apply our microwearable sensor and get an immediate read of whether it's a heart attack or not. That's step one. Step two is to take it out into the ambulance setting uh, where in that triage process on the way to the hospital, you're getting a read on that. Step three is taking it back to people who are at high risk for heart, heart attacks. Quite often it's people that have had heart attacks before for that continuous monitoring. And of course, uh, 
there's subsequent steps beyond that for the broader population. So that's what we have in mind in terms of the roadmap for that. Yeah. Now you sort of spell it out, I can see how in certain places that that would be really big. To mark to sort of step back a little bit and, and look forwards a bit, I guess, what more needs to be done to allow the technology that you, and as obviously you mentioned others in your sort of field, uh, what needs to be done to make it more accessible in lower income countries? Oh, that's a that's a multifaceted question. One of the things I admire from the kind of program that Rolex are doing and, and others like the Gates Foundation is that it raises the profile on the agenda. It provides a kind of call to arms to work in that particular space and use your skills in that space. I think that's, that's a key thing that um, the more that we can encourage quality engineers and scientists to deploy their skill set in these these key areas, the better. I think that's that's critical. There's everything that else that goes with that. To do any project, it needs to be appropriately resourced to make it happen. So that always applies. And so obviously these things cannot be stuck at, at an idea level. Uh, they need to be adequately resourced to go forward. Yeah, no, I mean, I imagined money would be part of the answer, but it's a bit more surprising and interesting like, to me that you sort of were saying basically talent is part of it as well. I think it starts with talent. If you're good enough and you're talented enough, you can tend to find the resources. If people are listening to this and thinking, I'm really fascinated by the idea of, you know, nanopatch vaccines being scaled up and micro-wearables being, you know, used in the field in low-income countries and so on, what can they do to help? Oh, there's, there's loads of things. Uh, so first, just being aware of the kind of work that's happening. I think that's a, that's a great start. Take a look at children, uh, so their career choices, what, what they're looking to do, what sort of career direction they may take. So people even being aware that this sort of avenue is a possibility is huge. Getting that kind of exposure can actually shape your thinking. I think that's part of it. I think there's a certain type of thinking that's needed as we, we're now in this space called the fourth industrial revolution, just at the early stage of that. And the ability to, to field hop, I think, is, is going to be even more important than ever. And so what that means is see something in one area and be able to pull that across and apply that in a really different way. There's quite often many solutions that are sitting out there. It's just someone needs to be able to see it and make the connection. Yeah, there's, there's many parts to this. No, no, that's good. Well, all on your last point about the sort of field hopping, I mean, the sort of the way that Pfizer and the um, the messenger RNA vaccines came about are kind of a great example of that, aren't they? I remember reading some, you know, there were some great stories of how the different components of that technology came about, right? From like, you know, being able to create the sort of ball of fat that would protect it so it could get to the place it needed to be to the various other steps. Well, that, that's right. And, and also uh, the early stages of those sorts of technology weren't even anywhere remotely close to uh, working on vaccines. So it's allowing some sort of evolution. Those sorts of companies like Moderna probably had multitude of near-death experiences, not people, uh, but the, the company itself. But they found a way to continue to go forward and evolve and actually be positioned uh, for this time in human history when the pandemic was coming into play. Got you, got you. Just sort of coming back to where we started, I guess, you know, we talked about obviously, you know, needles for delivering vaccines being sort of, you know, 19th century technology. And it feels like, you know, with what you're doing here, you know, you talked about you just started the first human um, trials with the micro wearables and you've been working for a while on trying to get the nanopatch into the field. It feels like you're potentially on the brink of a, you know, what could be a whole new frontier here. I mean, how hopeful are you that this will actually become a thing? Will, you know, get deployed, scale up? You know, could people be sitting on whatever the 22nd century equivalent of a podcast is 
talking about this moment you know I mean, obviously you'd hope that that would be what comes to pass but do, you know what are the reasons to think it will so i'm pretty i'm pretty confident that it's going to happen the the shape of it i can't fully predict nor the time span but these evolutions these technology pushes are are underway the part that i'm, I'm unable to pin down adequately is just how quickly it'll be taking place and and what evolution points in the technology that, that might be taking place. But this train's left the station. It's, it's already happening. But the question is just how it's going to play out. That's going to be interesting to participate in and also interesting to watch. Do you think we'll ever get to the point where the sort of the needle is done as a way of delivering vaccines? Do you think that's, there's a certain inevitability to that? I think it's highly plausible. I think uh, ultimately, Adam, what's coming way over the horizon, but it might be sooner than we think, is what's called the closed loop system. So... It's already happening in continuous glucose monitoring devices right now. So people with type 1 diabetes, they detect a level of glucose and there's dialed up amounts of responses happening. It's like an artificial pancreas. It's, it's, it's brilliant. It's changed people's lives. So that's just the thin end of the wedge. So uh, what I see coming is not just detecting uh, that some particular type of disease or, or condition but having there in the system the release of that particular therapeutic to be taking place in real time. And there's no reason why that needs to be the needle uh, sensibly. I think there's there's all manner of approaches that, that can be deployed. Maybe remind people listening, you know, just talked about the reasons to think that things might come to pass and some of the interesting work that's already happening. Just remind people of the prize here of if you're sort of successful with some of this technology. So uh, too, too many people are dying from, from things like infectious disease, cardiovascular disease. I, I don't have, Adam, all of the numbers together, but cardiovascular disease has north of 30 million people uh, that die per year. And we talked about infectious disease, which is sitting somewhere around 14 million, and that's not even counting COVID. So a, a lot of people are, are dying. And, and it's even more amplified that the lion's share of those are taking place in the developing world. So... I think the, the prize is helping address that and allowing people to live longer, healthier and productive lives. So that's really what we're looking to do. At least make a difference in that space. Well, we've been talking about health and we've been talking about technology. And, you know, we obviously we're talking in a year when, you know, perhaps the WHO might officially declare the end of the COVID-19 pandemic and people are already sort of worrying about what the next one might be you know I suppose that's all a preamble and a bit of context to saying really big picture question how hopeful are you for the future of humankind the biggest question we could get to I guess big question uh so we have a an amazing ability to invent and to create solutions so I'm, I'm optimistic about that I think we need to embrace that talent more than we do. A lot of us don't even realize that we can be part of the solution. We're just accepting problems and, and even just small things, nudge theory, if you increment them enough and aggregate them enough, you can actually make a difference in, in solving these problems. So also we tend to sometimes be at our best when our back's against the wall. Uh, so when, when it's a crisis on. So we saw that in many ways with how quickly vaccines were created and deployed in the pandemic. I think if we can try to get things done before it's a crisis, that'd be a good move in the right direction. So, or at least providing the signal of the force function for a crisis before it's actually off the charts. So we think of global warming as one example. So these things are in front of us and we can't wait until it's too late. 
So I think as long as we deploy our talents sensibly and, and see that we're actually part of the solution, I think I am hopeful then. You've been listening to Planet Hope with me, Adam Vaughan, and my guest, biomedical engineer, Mark Kendall. This podcast has been brought to you by The Times in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet initiative. The series producer is Anya Pierce, the production coordinator is Oliver Adamson, and the production assistant is Shana Johnson. You can listen to us for free on The Times radio app and download every episode in this series from wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave us a review. Thanks for listening. Planet Hope is brought to you by The Times in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. For nearly a century, Rolex has championed pioneering explorers who have shed light on the world and pushed the boundaries of human endeavour. Today's explorers are no exception, but they have a new focus, to make the planet perpetual. The Earth, once a playground for discovery, now needs our help to protect and preserve the natural world. Rolex supports the individuals and organisations who are protecting our world and inspiring generational hope as a part of its commitment to a perpetual planet. Discover more about the Rolex Perpetual Planet Initiative on rolex.org.